and welcome to the Intro to Drama podcast. I'm your professor, Kate Given. This week, we wrap up our discussion of Aristotle's poetics as we discuss three more elements of drama, diction, song, and spectacle. This podcast will help you with questions five, six, and seven of your whitelisted script analysis packet. Feel free to reference at any time you need a refresher on these concepts. Let's get started. So we've already read Aristotle's Poetics. We've already been over um, most of his, or I think half of his six elements of drama, which to recap are plot, character, thought, diction, song, and spectacle. So we've, uh, so we are going to focus today on the elements of drama, diction, song, and spectacle. All right. So we're going to start by speaking about diction. And diction is just literally what it says. It is the words that are used, how they sound, and what impact they have on the production, on the play, on the audience. So you can ask yourself, how are words used in this script? Does anything strike you right away about what language is used? And that language might exist in the spoken dialogue. Um, and for most of the period in which plays have been written, spoken dialogue has been the only way that we have had diction to look at. But modern playwrights love their stage directions, and so those are worth a look as well. Um, we already mentioned, we've already commented on whitelisted and Hutchinson's use of very colloquial, very colorful language um, that feels like you're so, sort of sitting there chatting with her about what's going on in the play, right? And that's something that's striking about the language. Something that's striking about the language in Hamlet might be that it, most of it's in iambic pentameter, right? So it's a very easy question of what do you notice? So that's the first level we start when we're talking about diction and talking about language in a script. And then you can start to ask yourself, well, what kind of language is used throughout? We can sort of go a little deeper into what diction, what language is being used. So, and that's essentially just really looking closely at the way words are constructed, the way the words and the lines are constructed and the way they sound. So you might ask yourself a bunch of questions. You might say, do most of the lines in this play, do, do most of the, does most of the spoken dialogue in this play, does it come across using short sentences? Or does it use very long, verbose, windy sentences? Um, is this language very flowery or is any sort of, you know, emotive and metaphorical? Or is this language very direct and blunt, right? Is this language modern? Is it classical? Is it archaic? Um, what, does the what does this language sound like or feel like? Does anything else just resonate with you about the language? Um, you're just taking a close eye at what is going on. So I think I've mentioned this before and I'm sure I'll mention it again. Um, there can be something almost meditative about a script analysis process. It's not just a matter of being very, like ironically, you don't, you don't necessarily go into this pure analytical process. You also sort of want to let the play wash over you. It's sort of one reason I love this process so much is it actually does blend the really super literal, analytical, like logical part of your brain where you're being very careful and picking up specific patterns, but you also need to sort of 
dive into the sort of like meditative, artistic, reflection, reflective quality um, of just what am I noticing? So you need to be able to sort of do this work of deep looking and noticing what's coming at you from the script. And then you need to apply your logical brain to it. You just get to use both. I think it's really lovely. When we're also looking at diction, we're looking at the way different characters use language within the script. Um, so you might, and you might want to see how those characters use language and how it, that language that they use reflects their character. Um, there will be a prompt in your script analysis packet where you actually pull out quotations from two different characters and you analyze the language specifically and say, how is the language different between the two of them? What do I understand about these characters? from that difference. There was a scene that we analyzed as a class last year um, between a character who, um, one character was very articulate, the other character um, not so much, and we were able to identify, you know, longer sentences versus shorter sentences, bigger words versus, you know, very, very basic sort of elementary level words. Um, and also, but also one of them had more emotive words and one had more logic-based words. And, we were able to sort of identify like what's going on in the scene based on that. I don't know, it's cool stuff. You can also, it, you can also see how characters are connected, not, not just differentiated by their language, but maybe connected by their language as well. Um, so we might see this through imagery, could be tied to one character or another. Um, you know, Shakespeare in particular loves to carry metaphors throughout the language of certain characters. Um, but that might not be limited just to Shakespeare. That could be in a playwright who's writing literally today. And so that might be, you know, if one character has flower metaphors throughout all of their dialogue and one character who's we, we know from the plot is tied to them doesn't have any of that metaphorical imagery in their lines, but then it's, but maybe it starts being added in and then they kiss, right? So we have this flower imagery that ends up tying these characters together or something like that. So language can tie characters together, can establish them as a part. You can also see sort of language and types of characters. So like maybe there are child characters and the children speak in one way. Or there's a play by Susan Glass, Susan Glassbull? Shoot, um, I think her first name is Susan, um, but Glassbull who wrote a play called Trifles. And that play deals a lot with the way men and women um, read or perceive information and analyze and make judgments on that information. And I don't know that Glassbull changes the language itself in terms of words used, although that would be worth a closer analysis. Um, but what they talk about, what they speak about is very different as well. The men in the play versus the women in the play speak about different things. So yeah, it's just an interesting thing to look into differences and similarities between characters. And so you, so I, we've, yeah, we've talked about imagery or types of language, whether that's sentence length, word choice, formality, and making those connections. And by the time we've sort of really done a deep dive into the way language is used, both to establish the world of the play and then to establish specific characters in the play, um, then we can move on to our next piece, uh, to our next element of drama, I should say, which is song. So this is one of the elements of drama that Aristotle lists that would be extremely different for 
Aristotle and for a modern person using Aristotle's elements of drama to analyze a play, okay? So recall, in Greek drama, what the characters are saying is poetry, right? It's not, it's not prose, it's not just regular spoken dialogue like I'm using now, it's poetry with the, with the rhythm and everything, with a meter, right? And in Greece, in classical Greece, poetry was set to music. So we can sort of think about it as almost like we would think about musical theater now. So when we are also too, when we are reading Greek plays and they feel, and they might feel sort of stilted and dry, um, if you're, if you have ever had that experience, a lot of that is because it's sort of equivalent to like, if you were to take the libretto of Sweeney Todd and you had no idea what the music, like if you've ever listened or just read the libretto of a musical and you've not heard the music and it's just a kind of a weird experience because you don't have all the information, um, that's a little bit what it's like when we read Greek drama these days. So again, when you're reading about song as an element of drama from Aristotle, he's sort of essentially talking about something that's a closer connection to musical theater for us. But we can still access song in modern drama. And this is definitely a place, I told you I was teaching you Aristotle's technique for script analysis, but with a, with a bit of a twist or just with, this is how I was taught script analysis. And this is sort of how people have extrapolated from this classical Greek text into how we can apply this to modern pieces, okay? So there are a bunch of different ways we can access song in a modern play. And of course, we're gonna talk about musicals as well, but we're gonna to get to them in a minute. So when we're talking about a play, one thing you can ask yourself is, are there literal songs referenced in this piece? Does the script say that a certain song needs to be played on the radio or the characters sing a certain song? And so the, then you can ask yourself, well, which characters are singing? Which characters are listening? What are the lyrics? What's the mood? How does this connect to what happens before um, in the plot or what comes next in the plot? How does it connect thematically to the piece, right? And you can have this awareness so that maybe, so that you know why a song has been included, right? You might ask, Ask yourself, is there any rhythmic poetry in this piece? Does maybe somebody quotes poetry? Maybe the lines themselves are poetry? Well, so what is the poetry about? And again, you sort of run down this list. What's it about? What's the emotional tenor of the rhythm that's presented? Does it sort of feel like, like, a, like a war drum almost, like building tension? Does it feel like a quaint little like like little standard meter poem, like cutesy? Does it feel romantic? Um, how does this poetry connect to what happens before or after in the plot? How does it connect thematically? How does it connect to the themes, right? So you can ask, so maybe song is showing up through played music. Maybe it's showing up through poetry that has a rhythm to it. Um, this is one of my favorite ways that, um, that song shows up in modern plays that don't have songs in the way that Greek drama would have. Um, do repeated words or noises throughout the play form a kind of song? So this is where you can sort of, I, I almost feel like I let my brain go a little bit fuzzy and I just imagine and think about the soundscape of the play itself. 
And so you could ask yourself like, well, what words or noises are repeated? When do I hear them? Who do I hear them from? Who hears them on stage? Um, a couple examples, and, oh, and how do those words or noises connect to the themes of the piece? So it's to sort of illustrate what I'm talking about here because it's a little bit more cerebral than I think what we've been talking about. Um, when I worked on arsenic and old lace, I don't think I've mentioned this to this class yet. Maybe I have, if I have, I'm sorry. But um, in Arsenic and Old Lace, one of the characters, which is this play about these old women who run a boarding house, but they end up just killing the men in their, um, that they allow to stay in their guest room because like they're all old and lonely and like they feel like they're doing them a kindness. And it sounds super dark and it is, but it's this like kind of broad comedy and so it's these like daint, quaint, like dainty, quaint, like sweet little Victorian ladies who are like, oh, we killed the poor dear. Um, and it's played for laughs. It's, yeah, um, great play, actually. Um, but their nephew, I think, who finds out and then there are capers because he's like, what are you doing? And then they're trying to stop the police from finding out and all of this, that, the other thing. Um, so their nephew's name is Mortimer which of course has mort in it for death, right? And the ants who have to be played by these like, you know, sort of old bitty kind of type um, are always going like, Mortimer, Mortimer. Um, they're always calling for him or his girlfriend will show, show up and be like, Mortimer. Um, so everybody is always calling Mortimer's name. Like, I don't think you go three pages without somebody going Mortimer. Um, so I was like, oh, Mortimer, death everybody is always calling out death. Like, like you can't get away from the subject of death in this comedy if you tried because somebody is always saying Mortimer's name. So that's sort of a repeated noise that creates this like song of death that sort of casts this pall over the whole um, comedy is one way that I have used this idea of finding song in a modern play. Another one, this isn't exactly repetition, um, but if, you are doing this exercise and you're reading Streetcar Named Desire, which is set, you know, um, deep south, right? Like there, um, it starts with this really calm stage picture. And there are a couple women on stage and it's that sort of like hazy, like southern evening. You can tell the light's all soft. It's very feminine. And then, um, Stanley, the male lead, who's a terrible person, um, the first line of the play, so Williams in his stage direction sets up this beautiful feminine stage picture, and then Stanley, like, goes, Stella! Hey, Stella! And, like, throws a hock of meat at his wife, and he's, like, the masculine provider. But it's, like, the soundscape of, like, you can almost, like, hear this, like, ah, softness, and then that's broken by this um, intrusion of masculinity, which really connects to the themes of streetcar. Um, so that's just a way of like asking yourself, how does this place sound? And what does that do thematically, right? And so that's something that might not be in a quote, like we've used a lot of quotations and we need to use a lot of quotations because that's how we get to the meat of scripts. Um, but we can also be aware of those sort of metaphorical moments as well. I hope that makes sense. Um, I really do like just thinking about like, how does this place sound? Of course, we also have musical theater, 
it's not just plays that don't have songs in them. We too love to write poetry and set it to music and perform that for people in our modern day, right? And so when you are, when you get to work on musical theater and you're analyzing it for the song in it, you've got a lot to work with. Um, you can ask yourself, how does each song fit into the plot? What is the tempo of each song? Are the types of song in the musical cohesive? Do they reference different styles of music? Why do they reference those styles? When do they reference those styles? Which characters reference which styles? Um, ask yourself about the lyrics. What do they mean? What is the mood of each song? How does each song connect differently to the themes of the piece? Um, are there repeated motifs, right? Um, like Lin-Manuel Miranda in, in The Heights in Hamilton, he loves to use repeated motifs. And he's riffing off a grand tradition of Western musical theater, like in like the different themes in Les Mis or Phantom of the Opera, right? Um, and then you can ask yourself, like, well, if I've got these motifs, like, you know, so I'm thinking about like in Les Mis, um, Les Mis is like one whole motif. <laughs> um, um, but you might have like the lovely ladies like da 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 da. Um, when does that come up again? So when we hear when we hear that at the beginning, right, it's sort of Fontaine's demise as she sort of descends into poverty and prostitution. Um, and then I think we hear that again in Act 2. When do we hear that? Um, no, I can't remember. But it's always tied to this sort of like, this it's always tied to like the lowest realities of the human condition that are sort of the fault of capitalism. That's what Les Mis is about. I love Les Mis. Um, right, so we can say like, what is this motif tied to? When does it appear? When does it reappear? Those kinds of questions. Um, so we've got a lot to ask about when we are talking about musical theater. So that's fun. And even if, say you are working on a play, there are no songs at all. There is not a song mentioned. There, you don't hear repeated words. You don't hear poetry. You don't hear rhythm. You hear nothing. I think, I think you're probably going to hear something, first of all. But say you don't. You can add some music in anyway, because will some scenes need music to play to fit what the director or what you, if you are the director or the sound designer, want to accomplish? Um, if so, cool. If not, or even if so, what about music that's going to play in the house before curtain or during intermission or after the show as the patrons are exiting? Um, even in this wacky age of digital theater and, um, you know, like Zoom call theater and all of that, people still play music before the piece begins, right? So what is that music? What kind of mu music do you think you would use? Do specific songs come to mind? What is, what emotional tenor? Like, do you want to have like a really, really dark piece of theater, but with like, sort of like cotton candy, like pop playing in between because you want that juxtaposition? Do you want to do a piece that's an adaptation of a Jane Austen and you want to keep in that sort of like harpsichord sound throughout? I don't know. So music is going to be involved in some way or another. So I think song is very exciting to look at and it can show up in modern drama in a lot of different ways. To wrap up and very, very briefly 
Aristotle's last element of drama that he speaks about is spectacle. Spectacle is important. It makes the top six list of elements, but it does come at the bottom because before you get to spectacle, you need to have established your plot, your characters, your themes, your language, and your song, your um, the sound, right? So then we get to spectacle. We get to basically everything else that supports the production. So especially for any designers out there, this is, this is our section, right? Um, speaking as somebody who's done more costume designing than acting or directing. Um, so you might be asking, you know, what spectacle, like, and spectacle meaning like spectacles, spectators, what am I looking at, essentially, is what it's saying. Um, so I'm looking at the sets or the lighting design. Um, the sound design might come in because we can sort of say, take it from spectators, um, what, what I'm looking at, but also what I'm experiencing. Um, what's necessary in the costumes or the makeup. Maybe you want to include the fight choreography in the spectacle, the spectacular things that need to happen on stage. Um, special effects might be included in this as well. So I might say, if I'm doing a production of Wicked, like, well, I need Elphaba raising up above the audience in Act One, at the end of Act One, for Defying Gravity. Um, to follow this theme, if I'm doing a production of Fan of the Opera, I need the spectacle of the chandelier crashing down at the end of Act One, right? Maybe I need a fireplace on stage because this script uses a lot of metaphors and even makes reference to a hearth. Um, even something as little as I saw um, a, a year, I think a year ago now or so, I saw a trilogy of plays at Irish Rep in New York and they had a little kettle on stage because the characters were always making tea and the kettle like literally had water in it um, because the actresses serving the tea was always a woman um, were pouring the tea and they like you could literally it was such a small house you could literally see that so um, so even something as small as like a kettle with water on it in it can be a part of the spectacle um, I might be asking myself as a costumer what period will I need to be representing through the spectacle of the costumes. And so it's basically everything else that goes into a production gets lumped into this one, this one space. Um, and that's just something that I'm gonna leave open for y'all to think about, like in whitelisted, what needs to happen, right? In Hamlet, what needs to happen? Like what, what spectacle happens in those productions? So in Whitelisted, I'm already thinking about, you know, Yvette pulling Rebe Rebecca up and so that she's like sort of hanging on the wall or sitting in a chair that's like up on the ceiling or something like that. Um, or in Hamlet, at some point, I'll need a really spectacular uh, sword fight between Hamlet and Laertes. It's got to be really impressive. Um, yeah, spectacle is fun because it's another one of those things that you like get to look at the breadth of what's going on. And you get to think to yourself like, so what does this play need to go up? And this can either be a tea kettle filled with water or pyrotechnics as you fly your actor up above the stage. Um, so this sort of like runs the gamut. And that's spectacle. Thank you for listening to the Intro to Drama podcast. That's going to do it for us today. We discussed how to analyze the language plays use, the songs within those plays, and the spectacles within those plays, everything else to support a production. 
I hope this has been a helpful lecture for you. I can't wait to hear your thoughts in class. Like always, take care, stay safe, and I'll see you on Tuesday.